Uh, We're in the book of Exodus. We are uh, moving through, and we are now uh, in Exodus 23 as we are introduced to an interesting uh, additional character, if you will, in the book. We've seen this one before, but we'll see something interesting. There's going to be a lot of application for us tonight. The uh, account begins in Exodus 23:20 with the words, Behold. And before we jump in any further, Father, bless the teaching of your word, the hearing of your word. May your power go forth into your people. May it be on display. May you change us from the inside out, Father, because we've heard your word, applied your word, and desired to be changed in the presence of our God and in the presence of your holy word and in your spirit and in the company of one another and even in the company of angels, as we're told that angels even participate in some way in our worship services. What a mystery that is. What a beautiful reality that is. And I pray that you would be our focus and you would be honored and glorified, Father, tonight. In the name of Jesus, I pray, all God's people said, amen. amen. The words behold open the text, Exodus 23, 20. Whenever you see that word, it's look or uh, look unto could be the idea of the word. Look to this one, if you will. Behold, I'm going to send an angel. If you have a King James, it's capitalized an angel with a, a capital A before you. God speaking to the people of Israel here now, departing from Mount Sinai to guard you along the way. To bring you into the place which I have prepared, Exodus 23, 21, be on your guard before him. Pay careful attention to him, says the ESV, and obey his voice. Do not be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression, since my name is in him. Now, this is an interesting uh, occurrence in the book of Exodus, where all of a sudden the people coming away from Mount Sinai, the focus has been law. No doubt the 10 realities, the 10 words, the 10 commandments that thundered from Mount Sinai. And that came to the people. And then the Lord gave them something we have called and other scholars have called the covenant code. Taking the 10 laws and then bringing them into everyday civil life, if you will. How does this work and how does that work? And we touched on some of those texts together and kind of got into some of the, the nitty gritty of details about you know, life uh, in Israel and how things should be judged. And we looked at homicide and accidental death. And we, some of the texts even deal with you know, if an animal dies and what to do with all of that. And the people have been given this covenant code, how they are to live, how they are to understand the application of the law. And I guess you would expect that verse 20 and 21 would say something more about the law, walking in the law, but just the opposite happens. In fact, the focus becomes on a entity that's coming to guide the people on their journey toward what we know as the promised land. Now, the promised land is the land of Canaan. Today, we know it as the land of Israel. And that land is something that God had set aside for the people of Israel. He had promised the land to Abraham. Abraham walked around on it, but he never really owned any of it except for some burial ground. Promises were reiterated to Isaac and then to Jacob. Jacob was renamed Israel, had 12 sons. Those are the 12 tribes. 
And now we find 400 years of Egyptian bondage. Out they go by the power of God's strong hand to the foot of Mount Sinai. And there God makes a covenant with the people. And he says, these are my laws. This is what I want you to do. And the people, of course, responded in the affirmative. Yes, we will do exactly what God says. And so they had the law. They had the code. But it's one thing to have instruction. <laughs> in fact, I would say that looking at this group tonight, you guys have a good amount of instruction under your belt. Amen? You know Bible verses. You can quote them. You probably, if I put you on the spot, could name most of the Ten Commandments, probably in order. But it's one thing to have instruction. It's another thing to live out who you are. And what God was doing at Sinai was trying to show the people, this is who you are. This is how I want you to live. And this is the place that I have prepared for you. And so in terms of identity as the people of God, that's who we are. We've been given God's word. We've been given his truth, if you will. And we desire to live it out. We live it out by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is our identity, if you will, as a community. We are a people of truth. But we're also heading somewhere. Amen? It's not just about Bible verses and things that we know, as important as God's word is. We're also heading towards a destination. And we're being guided toward a destination. Jesus put it this way. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place for you, I am coming again to receive you to myself. Listen, that where I am, there you may be also. And so when Jesus came on the scene in his earthly ministry, his first words, you know, you, you read the Gospels, are basically these words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the kingdom of God is at hand. And over and over again, he says to people, follow me, follow me, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, follow me. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He says, my sheep know my voice and they follow me. Our job is to follow him. It's not just about rules and instructions, and I think that's some of what's implicit here. It's about following our good shepherd. And you can see here that God, speaking now, says, I'm going to send an angel. He will later describe this one as my angel. Look at the end of verse 21. My name is in him. Now, this particular angel has brought up a lot of questions and uh, you know, speculation, you could say, among scholars. Who is this angel? How are we to make sense of this? And some, uh, a good majority of scholars concluded that the angel was Moses because the Hebrew word for angel is malak. And in Greek, the word for angel is angelos, where we get the idea of the city of angels, los angelos or los angeles. Malak could be simply rendered a messenger. So sometimes an angel is just that, a divine being. You know, Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around the people of God, etc. But, but it could also be a messenger as in like in the book of Malachi that we recently studied together. In fact, that's what Malachi's name is. Malak is the idea of Malachi, the messenger of the Lord. So some people said, this is Moses. Moses is the messenger. But Moses never entered into the promised land. 
And I don't think Moses is the messenger. And someone like uh, Tertullian around 200 AD and then picked up by Augustine a couple hundred years later thought it was Joshua. They said Joshua is the Moloch listed here. He's the messenger or the angel because he's going to lead the people. Remember, Moses only got to see the promised land from Mount Nebo. He didn't enter because he misrepresented God in that scene where he struck the rock. I think you all know that story. But Joshua took over for Moses and he was called to be strong and courageous and go in and take the promised land. And they had to take Jericho and they crossed the river and you know the story right there. And someone like Augustine said, well, right there within the name is, is the fulfillment. It's prophetical, he might say. It's the language that he used. Because he said the very name of God is within this one. And Joshua's name in Greek is Jesus. And so Augustine was like, oh, we got it, man. The Malak, the angel, is Joshua. But I think you're going to see that this particular uh, being, if you will, has more than that to him. In fact, he has the power to not pardon sin. Remember, I was listening to Alistair Begg earlier, and he was, uh, he was in Mark chapter 2 and talking about, remember when the friends lowered that paralytic down through the roof because they couldn't get to Jesus? And when he was lowered down, the first thing that Jesus says to him is, your sins are forgiven you. Now, that wasn't his great need. At least people standing there on the outside would say, no, the dude's crippled. He got lowered down. Not that you could pronounce forgiveness on him. He got lowered down so that you could make his legs work again. But Jesus dealt with first things first because the most important healing is the healing of the soul. Amen? Your sins are forgiven you. And of course, the religious leadership, they were always there. <gasps> Who does he think he is? No one can forgive sins but God alone. Exactly. Because Jesus is God. And then he says, remember, well, okay, boys, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven you or to say Rise up, take up your pallet, and walk. But so that you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth, he said to the man, get up and walk. And you remember what happened. The man got up and he walked. And Jesus showed his authority. This one in verse 21, this, well, let's look at the two verses together because I think there's a lot to unpack here. The, this angel will go before you. I'm going to send an angel before you. Notice, mark these things. To guard you. So he's not going to just be with you. He's going to lead the way. He's before you. He will guard you along the way and bring you into the place which I have prepared. So notice the descriptions of this messenger. He's, he's going to guide. He's going to guard. He's going to bring and then the, the Lord says, be on your guard before him. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Remember up on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. And Peter said, oh, Lord, it's good that we're here. Should I, bring, should I build three shelters or tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah? Yeah. And Peter wasn't dumb. 
because they were glorified up on the mountain. Jesus was showing his glory and you house glory in tabernacles. He wasn't that dumb. He, he, he knew that that's what happened. He knew that was the Old Testament account. He knew that that was what was celebrated at the Feast of Tabernacles. So we'll build three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. That's what we do with glory. We house the glory. But a voice came from the glory cloud and said, this is my beloved son. Remember the words? Listen to him. In other words, maybe reading between the lines, Peter, shh. It's not the worst thing in the world that you want to build some tabernacles. But we got more important business up here on the Mount of Transfiguration. Listen to him. Amen? Amen. Even Moses and Elijah fade into the background in the presence of God the Son. Pay careful attention. Obey his voice. Don't be rebellious toward him, for he will not pardon your transgression. Notice the authority that he has. Since my name is in him. Is the angel Moses, Joshua, is he a regular? <laughs> I say that with all due respect. A regular angel? Or could this be God the Son? Well, I think many commentators have argued that this is Jesus before he was born in Bethlehem. And you all know, if you've studied the Bible for any length of time, that oftentimes the angel of the Lord in our Bibles is a pre-incarnate visitation. You could call it a temporary visitation of the second person of the Holy Trinity prior to him becoming a man. Remember, Jesus is eternal, the Trinity is the triune God always existing. Uh, you know, before Jesus was born as a baby in Bethlehem, you had the triune God. So it may well be, and from the descriptions of this particular one who's leading them and guiding them and protecting them, and uh, if they rebel, will not forgive their sin, is important. Uh, Isaiah 42, one in a servant song says, Behold my servant whom I Uphold my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry out or raise his voice nor make his voice heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not be disheartened or crushed until he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands will wait expectantly for his law. Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. I think that you can see the direction that I'm moving here. And I think that this is a, an appearance and, uh, of the pre-incarnate Christ, the second person of the Trinity that came to guide the people. If you look back just for a moment at Exodus 14, we've already seen this. Uh, we've actually seen it twice. Go to Exodus 3, and then we'll move to chapter 14. Just take a peek. Exodus 3. Look at verse two. So Moses is pastoring the flock. He comes up to see this great sight. The angel of the Lord, Exodus 3, 2, appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of the bush. Now notice that the description of the being is the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh. One commentator says he thinks you can render this the angel which is Yahweh. 
And he looked, Exodus 3, 2, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw, I want you to notice the almost indistinguishable uh, nature of between the angel and the Lord himself. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Skip down to verse six. He also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. If you go back to verse two, you'll note that the angel of the Lord is the one in the midst of the bush in the blazing fire, and yet he describes himself as I am the God of your father, and so forth. I think you can see the connection. In Exodus 14, just look ahead for a moment, in verse 18, the people are told that the Lord will fight for you, Exodus 14, 14, and then on to verse 18. Then the Egyptians, Exodus 14, 18, will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. So the angel of God, Exodus 14, 19, and the angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came about between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was their cloud, the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near to the other all night. And then the rest of the story is the Lord allows Moses to stretch out his hand. He opens the way of the sea and so forth. You can see that on several occasions in the book of Exodus, this one described as the angel of the Lord comes to the people's rescue. He becomes one who leads them and guides them, protects them. And that, this is the idea that we are picking up again in Exodus 23. Be on your guard before him. Listen to him. This is the angel that I have sent. If you do a little search in your New Testament, you'll find that on many occasions, Jesus says, I am the one whom the Father sent. God sent his son. This angel is sent by God. You say, Pastor Michael, why are you making so much of this? What is the main point? Here's the main point. I think that in the Exodus, we have a picture of our salvation journey. The book of Exodus is a book about salvation. The people have been rescued from bondage. They've been purchased with the blood, painted on the doors. Off they go into freedom. But they are still moving through having to take territory, if you will, having to face enemies, going towards a destination that is the promised land. And we're on a similar journey, are we not? We've been saved by the blood. We've been baptized into, you know, through the sea, if you will. They were baptized into Moses, 1 Corinthians 10. We're off on this journey, but we are battling similar things to the Israelites. What are the things, the two main battles we fight? I would argue they are unbelief and idolatry. Amen? We, we battle this all the time. We battle doubts and unbelief. Sometimes we doubt God. Sometimes we doubt our faith. And we battle idols that are all around us. And we need help. We need a guide. We need someone to help us. And here's the good news. You know what we have? We have a good shepherd. 
who is always wanting to guide us. He's our great high priest. He's always wanting to pour out help. And one of the great provisions that he's given to his people is the power of God the Spirit inside of you. Amen? All you got to do is tap into it. You say, that's my problem. I'm not a good tapper. I feel you. But it's all about just drinking in what's already available to you. Jesus will guide you. The Spirit will empower you. And we are told, look, I want you to obey his voice. If you will truly obey his voice, look at verse 22 back in Exodus 23, and do all that I say. And of course, this is our problem, isn't it? We want to do some of what he says. If you do all that I say, I want you to notice, brethren, that the angel and God here are syntactically the same. The, the language would tell us that they are synonymous. Notice, if you will truly obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. How many of you want God on your side? <laughs> I think you all do. Do you know when he becomes an enemy to your enemies? When you obey him. Now, I feel some of you saying, but wait a minute, we're in the new covenant. Oh yeah, we're saved by grace. We are a people that revel in the grace of God every day. But obedience is still a New Testament concept. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and you don't obey me. So if we say we love him, Jesus put it this way, then you will keep my commandments. And here's the good news, brethren. His commandments are not burdensome. They're not burdensome. And if they are a burden to you, you're doing something wrong. Because his commandments are not burdensome. Amen? Amen. See, they become a burden. Please hear me when you try to lift them from the power of your flesh. That's when they'll become burdensome. And that's when you and I are doing something wrong. If the commandments of God are not the delight of my soul, I'm not walking in the spirit. I'm walking in the flesh and trying to be religious. Good luck with that. <laughs> religious, religious, smile, smile. Religious, religious. No, 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 no. No, no, no. Nobody wants that. That's just phony. You can have that. I don't want that. What I want to sense is power. I want to know the power of his resurrection and even the fellowship of his sufferings. And so this angel of God, I, I think we can see here our good shepherd wanting to guide us in the way. I think this will help sum it up. Hold, hold your place in Exodus. Go to John 17. Jesus' great high priestly prayer. We could call this the Lord's Prayer. And in John 17, he's praying to the Father in light of his departure. Here's what he says. John 17, 8. The words which you gave me, I have given to them. Jesus is praying to the Father. The Son praying to the Father. They are distinct from one another, yet both are God. This is the... Trinity, once again, 
I think we can see the parallel from Exodus 23 to John 17. The words which you gave me, I have given to them, 17, 8. They received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I've been glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, notice, the name which you have given me, and that they may be one, even as we are. While I was with them, I was keeping them in your name. Remember, this angel, is it's said of him, my name will be in him, which you have given me, and I guarded them, some of which we see in Exodus 23. I guarded them, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Back to Exodus 23. You can see the parallels between the angel of the Lord and our great high priest, Jesus Christ, as he prays for his people. And here's what God says now about this angel back in Exodus 23, 23. It says, for my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. When Paul's preaching in Pisidian Antioch in Acts chapter 13, he calls them the seven nations of Canaan. And some scholars believe that there were more uh, nations there, but they're captured in the, in the uh, number seven because that's kind of like a Hebrew way of thinking things through. There may have been more than them, but this is a representative list of the peoples that were in the land of Canaan. Now, I want to show you something from Genesis 15. God is cutting the covenant with Abraham, and he, there's a prophecy given, and I want to link this to what we just studied in Exodus and show you how this works. This may answer a question or two that you have about some of these issues. So uh, God makes this unconditional covenant with uh, Abraham, Genesis chapter 15. He says in verse 13 uh, to Abraham, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. Long before this ever happened, they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Prophecy about the Egyptian bondage. But I will judge that nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Genesis 15, 15. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, that is to the land, promised land, for the iniquity of, would you notice, the Amorite is not yet complete. Now we'll go back to Exodus. Hopefully you have your place right back there. My angel will go before you to bring you into the land of the Amorite. The iniquity of the Amorite's not complete, Genesis 15, 16. Now my angel's gonna go before you. Amorites are the first one listed of those nations that the angel will completely destroy. What's the point? The point is that when God was speaking the prophecy to Abraham, he was looking forward hundreds of years, centuries into the future. The people in the land were already doing evil. 
They were stacking sin, one sin upon another. But God was allowing, you could call it a season of mercy. And they stacked sin upon sin. This would include child sacrifice. This would include kind of the worst things that you could think of in terms of pagan uh, idolatrous worship and all that went with it, all the ugly stuff that went with it to appease the so-called gods of fertility and crop blessings and, and so forth. They even thought they were responsible to feed the gods. The gods could do everything else except feed themselves. Look, if your god can't feed himself, you might want to get a new god, right? God says in Psalm 50, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. Anyway, but this is what the people did. And so God waited and waited and waited. And he told Abraham, the iniquity of the Amorites not yet complete. So you're not going into the land yet because their sin is not stacked up to which I'm going to now judge them. But hundreds of years later, the iniquity of the Amorite was complete. And the angel of the Lord, and our, remember, we, we studied in Exodus earlier that our, the Lord is a warrior. You know that? The Lord is his name. He, he will fight our battles. And now the iniquity of the Amorite was complete. What does that mean, Pastor Michael? Judgment time had come to Canaan. And do you know that the tool of God's judgment in the land of Canaan was Israel? So a lot of times when people are reading the Bible, they're like, how could God ask Israel to go into the land of Canaan? Other people were living there. And how could they go in there and wipe everybody out? You know, what a mean God. What a terrible thing. But you have to understand that God waited and waited and waited because God is patient and he's, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked and he doesn't want anybody to perish but all to come to repentance. But finally God said, I've had enough. And he knew that the Amorite was not going to repent. And the angel of the Lord went in there with the armies of Israel and they wiped out those seven nations because God said, that's enough. Now there's a modern application. You know what the modern application is? Our, our God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we're, we're in a season of mercy. The question is, how long will it go on? I'm asking the question, in thinking about our country. How long will it go on? And, I, and the fact is, I don't know. But I know God is merciful, and I know there's a remnant, and I know that we're crying out to God. But when the Lord led Israel into the promised land, and of course Joshua was at the head, humanly speaking, well, it was judgment time for Canaan. And the Lord put Israel in the place of those seven nations. And he said these words. Don't you do what they do. Because if you repeat the detestable practices of those people, then I'm going to kick you out of the land too. And guess what happened? Israel repeated the detestable practices of the pagan nations and got booted out of the land. And you all know what happened. Assyria came down in around 722, wiped out the 10 northern tribes. 
In 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes with the armies of Babylon and wipes out the southern tribes. And 70 years of captivity, God promises through Jeremiah and then, uh, or through uh, Daniel and Jeremiah. And then they come back to the land, of course. And we know we, we have an intertestamental period, you know, from the last book of Malachi to Matthew or Mark. But the people did not recognize the time of their visitation. And Jesus wept. Said, if you in this day only knew, you could put it this way, who it was that was coming to you. Who it was that was riding in on that colt. Who it was that was going to die on Friday of Passover week. You would have repented. But you didn't. And so God says in Exodus 23, 24, and I hope you can feel the weight of it. You shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but shall utterly overthrow them. You will be my tool of judgment and break their sacred pillars, notice, in pieces. I want their idols smashed. I want those pagan sites down where they committed those abominable atrocities. The the issue is not stones placed for an altar. God instructed some of that to occur. 12 stones representing the 12 tribes, etc. The altar is not the issue. It's what happened there that is the issue. And God says, I want that erased from the land. The, the, The land is polluted with innocent blood. I want you smashing those sacred pillars. I want you to take them out. 2 Kings 10, write it down. 26 to 28, listen to this. This is about Jehu. They brought out the sacred pillars of the house of Baal and burned them. They also broke down the sacred pillar of Baal, 2 Kings 20, 10, 27, in the, down in the house of Baal, and they made it into a latrine to this day. That's one of my favorite verses now. And and that is literally a Bible verse. I'm going to read it to you again. They broke down the sacred pillar of Baal, broke down the house of Baal, and made it into a toilet. (laughs) 2 Kings 10.27 And Jehu eradicated Baal out of Israel. Do you think God's messing around? Some people say, oh, that's disrespectful. (laughs) Well, apparently there was a version of a Baal toilet uh, back in the day. It was a latrine just to give you a little bit of an idea of what God thinks of idols and idol worship. And so you shall serve the Lord your God, 25 And he will bless your bread and your water. And I will remove sickness from your midst. There shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. That is that you will live a long, blessed life. What's the key? Obedience. What's the result? Blessing, bread, water, health, uh, fertility, All the things that the pagans thought they had to do to appease the false god so that they could get these things. Do you know why they sacrificed their babies on the god Molech? They did it to get fertility blessings. That is rain, crops, that kind of thing. They would 
kill their firstborn children, sacrifice them to these false gods so that they could be taken care of. And somehow they found a way to justify it, just like we do in the modern age. Well, we got to do it because of this or this or this or this. And God said, no. Look, if you just simply obey me, I will give you everything that these pagans think that they're doing to earn it or appease the gods. Now, I will tell you, this is not a blanket promise for all believers in modern day. We have to be careful here. We know that sometimes, you know, look, we're all going to die of our last disease. You all know that, right? I mean, I, I was sharing with you on Resurrection Sunday miracle stories, and they're real, and they happen, but they are miracles, okay? And while it is true that I think that Proverbs and other scriptures will bear out, if you live wisely, you'll probably live a long, prosperous life in the best sense of that word. I'm not talking about prosperity doctrine here. I'm talking about that if you live wisely, from the big picture standpoint, things will probably go well for you. But I want to be careful that this is not a guarantee that you won't have any trials in your life or you'll never be sick because that's, that's the extreme that sometimes some of our well-meaning brethren on the other side go and then they hurt people and they stumble people and we've got to contextualize this. This is written to Israel but I will say the principle is still here. If you live wisely, if you obey the Lord, blessings will follow. What those blessings look like, they will not always be material. You may not, you know, never get ill or never have to deal with anything. But from the big picture perspective, you'll be blessed. Everybody with me? And I will send my terror ahead of you. And throw into confusion all the people among whom you come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets, some believe literal, some figurative, ahead of you. That you may drive out the Hivites. Now again, a representative list of those nations. The Canaanites and the Hittites before you. God says, I'm going to deal with, I'm going to fight your battles. Anybody against you will be against me. I will throw them into confusion. We know fear had fallen on Jericho, uh, Joshua chapter 2, and other uh, wars depict armies thrown into confusion by the God of the Bible. This is what he promised. And then he says these words, I will not drive them out before you 29 in a single year, that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out, that is the enemies of God, before you, how? Little by little, until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. Now, before they ever got there, and you know that the, under Joshua, they never fully took the land. What we do know is that the land was finally, in the boundaries that we're going to read about, finally taken under David and Solomon. That's when the borders were the widest not under Joshua. They didn't take the full uh, promised land. And, they, and that was largely because of disobedience. But they were going to go through a process before they ever even entered you know, into Jericho of driving the people groups out, the enemies of God, our enemies, little by little. Some of you have some amazing stories about how the Lord delivered you from something 
and you came into your relationship with Christ and you know, may, maybe you had this besetting sin or this huge issue and man, overnight, the Lord took it away. Praise the Lord. And some of you got those stories and, and those are wonderful. And, and maybe you've had, you know, if you had a list of 10 things, you'd say, well, this went out immediately. But I will tell you, for the majority of us, sanctification happens little by little, one step at a time. In fact, I think implied here is that the Lord knows how we are and he knows that we're going to have to, have to deal with ongoing sin challenges and uh, you know, finding victory in our lives over certain patterns and things and idiosyncrasies and shortcomings little by little. And I want to say that to encourage you that while God can remove things instantaneously, the pattern of sanctification, as I understand the Bible, is that it happens little by little. One faithful foot in front of the other, walking with the Lord. Amen? I will tell you, having been saved in the late 80s, that was a long time ago, I carried a whole basket full of sins when I walked down that aisle for the first time. I had more, it would take a while here for me to name you know, what I was up to, but I would tell you I was up to mostly no good. I was not doing, I was, my life was nowhere near what God would have for me. But little by little, the Lord was knocking sin out of my life. And he would put something before me. I would hear a, a sermon. It would be like the first time I, oh, that's a no-no. Oh, <laughs> that's a no-no. And uh, I'd have to move forward from that and deal with my own proclivities to go back to that thing. And, you know, I've told you from this pulpit before that I, I tried to go back many times, much to my shame. I don't know what I thought I was going to find, but I tried. And then, then I came to a, a point in my life where a lot of those sins of my youth you know, were in the rearview mirror. And I want to tell you that there's hope for you that those sins can be in the rearview mirror for you. But I will tell you, you got to look at it. It, it. it may well be little by little. And I, and I hope that that gives you some hope. That you know, sometimes we say something like this. We say, Lord, why is that thing still tempting me? Or why do I still do that? Or why do I still fall to that? Because you're being sanctified little by little. If you conquered everything overnight, we might all be in trouble. Because we know how you'd come walking into church. Oh, you, oh, you're still struggling with that, brother or sister? Come on, get over it, man. Wasn't that a Don Henley song? Get over it. Anyway. Sorry. But I don't think that was a godly song, so get that out of your mind. Uh, but here's the principle. Little by little, until you become fruitful. The Lord's chipping away until you come into the full promises of taking possession of the land. This Sunday, we'll deal with these verses. It says these words, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We got to work it out. We're not working for our salvation. 
And we'll make that clear on Sunday. But we're working out our salvation. With what? Fear and trembling. Why, why do we need fear and trembling? Because we know how we are. <laughs> and we need to go before the Lord consistently and say, Lord, help me because I know how I can be. Amen. Thank you, brother, for an honest amen there. And I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea. So you think of the south now. To the Sea of the Philistines, that's the coast. From the wilderness to the river Euphrates. So the, the full borders of the land, if you will. I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand. So God's doing the work. And then notice what you get to do. You will drive them out before you. I'm going to deliver them. I'll take care of all the big heavy lifting. And then you'll get to kind of just clean it up. And then a final warning. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. Now we know as they went into the land that a lot of the Canaanites were still there. And the influence did happen. But God said these words. They shall not live in your land lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, what's your Bible say? It will surely be a snare to you. And so there it is. Here's how Riken puts it. God adopted a zero tolerance policy toward the Canaanites and their gods. Their worship was vulgar. It involved sexual promiscuity, child sacrifice, and the worship of wood and stone. The Israelites were to totally get rid of the Canaanites and their worship sites, if you will. But throughout the rest of their history, they kept getting ensnared by pagan deities again and again and again. And that was the problem. And so I want to take you to Psalm 81, and we're done. Shane, if you want to come forward, Psalm 81. And I'll just give you some takeaways. So we have a faithful good shepherd and he guides us and he protects us and he supplies for us. And our call, our part is to follow him and to obey his voice. Amen? And so we walk the journey and we see another principle that the things that we face, the enemies, seven, ten, whatever the number is of the Hivites, the Hittites, the Koronites, the Norkites, whatever they are, they come at us. But God will fight our battles. He'll be an enemy to our enemies if we simply will get behind him and follow him and obey him. And little by little, we'll take another enemy or conquer another enemy, conquer another enemy, little, little by little, until we come into the full promises and end up, obviously, in the place that God has prepared for us. And so don't lose heart. Psalm 81, 6. I relieved Israel's shoulder of the burden. His hands were freed from the basket. You called in trouble, Psalm 81, 7, and I rescued you. I answered you in the hiding place of thunder. I proved you at the waters of Meribah, Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you would listen to me, let there be no strange God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. I, the Lord, am your God. Who brought you up from the land of Egypt? Open your mouth wide. I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel did not obey me. So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. 
And then God says, oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would quickly subdue their enemies, turn my hand against their adversaries. Those who hate the Lord would pretend obedience to him, and their time of punishment would be forever. And I would feed you with the finest of the wheat, with the honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. Father, thank you for your word. Whatever lessons you want us to learn tonight, let those go deep into our soul. Whatever is not profitable for your people, not glorifying to you, let them quickly forget it. May you be glorified in the way that we respond to your word, Lord. Thank you for the promises, the beauty, the strength, the the hope that's in your word. May you bless your people with renewed strength tonight. Bless those who are watching or will watch this later via live stream. Encourage them in their faith. Draw us all to Jesus or closer to Jesus if we know you. We love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name.